Sound design. We're all, you know, slightly broken in some ways, and that's okay. And what's important is saying, well, I struggle with this. Let me surround myself with people and support networks and systems that help me be a better person or be a better business owner or overcome those challenges and obstacles, because that's the only way we really grow as business owners and humans. Sound design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the show to help you build your career as a sound engineer in the home of the world's first online career coaching program optimized for audio professionals. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by the world leader in marketing education for freelancers and consultants, Kai Davis. Kai, welcome to Sound Design Live. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here and an honor to uh, have a conversation with you for your audience. So Kai, I definitely want to talk to you about how sound engineers like us can grow their businesses by improving our outreach through the systems you describe in your book, Outreach Blueprint. But first of all, what would be the soundtrack to your victory dance? I spent more time thinking about the answer to this question. And <laughs> I have other questions in a long time. <laughs> and uh, uh, there, there was research. There was reviewing my Spotify playlists. Uh, uh, and I probably went some two. emotional heights and valleys and, and breakdowns and breakthroughs. Yes. Battle Song by Deltron 3030. <laughs> Or Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. I never miss a beat. Well, and thank you for sharing this publicly. You know, some people wouldn't want to be that candid. Oh, I love him. I, I love Swift. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kai, how did you get your first job in marketing? So I've always been fascinated with marketing and business. Uh, my dad semi-jokes that he gave me the curse of entrepreneurship when I was born. He owns his own business. His father owns his own business or owned his own business. And I've always been fascinated with marketing and business. So in high school and college, I started my, my own eBay business. Uh, in college, I started doing marketing consulting on the side. And so it was very much side hustles projects just to better understand what it was like to work in the world of marketing. But for my first real marketing position or marketing job, it was with a startup in Eugene. They just recently went public. Uh, they make electric vehicles. And I was hired on as their social media marketing manager. And from there, I just very aggressively and assertively kept my eyes open for different career opportunities in the marketing world in Eugene, changed positions a few times, uh, ended up as the director of marketing for a large construction company in the area, oh, wow. and then went fully independent uh, a little bit after that. Okay, cool. So it started out as you being an entrepreneur with your eBay business and thinking like, huh, I wonder how I get more people to know about this. What is marketing? Let me look at that. Is that kind of maybe the first way you just needed it to grow your own business and be an entrepreneur. 
Very much so. And in fact, for myself, it was almost the inverse. I was fascinated with marketing. And I, I remember one day when I first found Seth Godin's blog in college, and I just spent probably three days straight reading the entire archives twice. And it was wonderful. And I had all of this new fascinating information. And I said, I want to apply this. Okay, where could I apply it? And I'd had a small eBay business on the side. And I was like, let me just start testing ideas here. And so it very much was hey, I have this business, hey, I've learned these new concepts, let me start combining them together. And what I'd like you to do is kind of think back through your career so far to today, and what you think is one or maybe two of the best decisions you made to get more of the work that you really love. It's a, it's a great question. Uh, there's two things that come to mind. The first is being clear with myself who my ideal client is, what industry they work in, what uh, uh, what field they are, who they are, size of the company, and how I could help them, what problem they're experiencing, and what outcomes they're searching for. We, we could think of this as positioning or specialization, but being clear of myself, who am I marketing to? Who am I selling to? Who am I trying to attract? Who am I trying to help? So that's the first one. Every time I've become more clear on that, I've been able to get more of the work I really love with people that I love working with. The flip side of it is I've had to accept that because I run a solo business, I'm an independent consultant uh, uh, for a majority of my work, I have to be ruthless about letting go of projects or clients or opportunities that just aren't a fit. Sometimes mm -hmm. there are people who say, hey, we really want to hire you for this thing, but it's not the target market I want to work with. It's not a problem I'm interested in solving. Sometimes I will pick up those projects and say, hey, this seems like a fun thing. Yeah, let's do it as a one-off project. But there's also the element of saying, well, every year if there's a few clients that just aren't a match or I feel like I'm not helping them or they need A, I'm more providing C, D, or E now, I need to be okay with letting them go. Uh, Alan Weiss advocates letting go of 10% of your client portfolio every year to free up slots and spots for new people who are better matches or better paying or better fits or the type of work you want to be doing. And mm -hmm. I think it's very much sort of like a, there's a drift or an element of iteration in it. Five years ago, if you asked me who my ideal client was or what type of work I'd love doing, it'd be a very different answer than it is today. So sure. by sort of cleaning our client list over time, we're able to move from where we were five years ago, where we're, where we are today, to where we want to be in the future. And being clear on who our ideal client is and how we can help them just makes it easier to say, well, this client is a fit, this prospect is a fit, this current client is not a fit, let me transition them to a consultant who'd be able to better help them and who they are a better fit for. Mm -hmm. To me, those sound like those are connected. And I feel like you're saying, these are the things I'm saying yes to, and these are the things I'm saying no to, and the better that you get at those, and maybe it's not it's not even like reaching 100% or some sort of goal, it's just sort of like staying attuned to that so that as you change and as your business changes and grows over the years, you're, you are getting better at that until you, you know, hopefully just have like 100% of work that you really love and not like some of it where you're like, eh, I don't like this. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's very much an iterative process that's ongoing. Uh, I advocate for anybody that I work with one-on-one -on -one as a coaching student or as part of my mastermind programs, periodically, quarterly, or every six months, review your client list, review your past client list, and just score them either quantitatively or qualitatively. Were these people a match? Who wasn't a match? And start identifying those signals. Oh, you know, these three clients, they weren't the best match. The work was fine, but I just really didn't enjoy it. How could we better screen those people out? So if they aren't a match, they don't end up becoming clients.
So Kai, one of the most common emails that I get is people saying, hey, can you help me find more work? Or I want more of this, or I want to transition into this, or some change, some transition, some more of something. And then the most common response I always have for them is more of what? Like what kind of work? What kind of projects do you want to work on? You know, do you want to be touring or do you want to be in one spot? Do you want to do this kind of music, do this kind of show? There's all these follow-up questions and that happens over and over and over again. So I'm wondering if you remember what it was for you that sort of triggered this knowing that you didn't know. That moment when you're like, oh, I should define the things that I want more specifically. It's not just clients, it's clients who work in this kind of project. Was there reading some book or, um, I don't know, working with someone else that could have sort of tipped you off to that, that I need to be more specific at going after the things that I want? Absolutely. It was a combination of three different things. Uh, one was I was working as a consultant. It, it was essentially a full-time contractor consultant role. It starts to get blurry in my mind between like, is it an employee? Is it not an employee? But digression aside, I was working in this full-time consultant role for company. We'd been together for two years. I had a few other clients I worked with on the side. And I spoke with my contact, the chief marketing officer one day, and I said, hey, I'd love a testimonial from you for our work together just to understand the value that I've contributed. And she said, we love having you as part of the team. We love working with you. I just can't quite define what it is that you do, but I know it's valuable. And I was like, shit, I am not accurately communicating my value here. And I realized I was a generalist as a consultant in the big picture and in the small picture within this company. So I was working on projects ranging from, hey, we need somebody to help project manage the integration of a new customer management system for our sales team and our development team to, hey, we need somebody to help us implement an email marketing strategy. So I was touching a number of different points in the company and providing value, but because I wasn't specialized or focused on any one area, it all sort of mushed together. Like if you mixed all the different paints together on a uh, palette into a, a blurry brown and so, there wasn't any way for the client to say, oh, you provide clear value in this area. And so I think that was the first sort of triggering moment that made me say, oh, I really need to specialize and focus in. The second and third really are related. I'm part of a mastermind group. I've been part of it for three and a half years now. And one of my fellow members is Philip Morgan, who wrote the book, The Positioning Manual. Uh, you could check it out at thepositioningmanual.com. And he also has a free course, positioningcrashcourse.com. And his book is all about specialization and positioning. And so talking with him and working with him through our mastermind group, and through reading the positioning manual, I realized that by positioning myself and specializing to focus on a specific problem, a specific industry, a specific vertical, it really would improve my marketing. Since instead of trying to market to everyone out there, hey, I could do things for you for money, please hire me, mm -hmm. it was saying, I specialize in solving this problem. Sure, I could solve other problems for you, but this is the problem I'm really good at. And this is the type of client that I ideally work with. Yes, I work with other clients, but this is the ideal client. And so, by specializing in that way, by having Philip help open my eyes to that fact, I realized that by narrowing my focus, I could essentially become the biggest fish in a small pond that I define. Rather than competing with every digital marketing consultant out there, I could say, I specialize in working in this area. I specialize working with this customer. I specialize sure. in solving this problem. And that made it easier to attract more clients. Number one, you asked for feedback. That was a big moment for you. And then the second one was, um reading the positioning manual and getting involved with the author. Very much so. Nice. 
Kai, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making who are maybe new to freelancing and trying to find new clients? I think it's a combination of two things. The first really connects with the positioning and specialization that I touched on before mm -hmm. in that if if you're trying to pick up new clients, but you're undifferentiated from your competitors, really clients are going to look at you and or your business and say, well, why should I pick you over competing firm A, B, or C? And it's really through specialization saying, hey, I do this specifically, or I help with this problem, or I have five years of experience solving this type of issue, that clients are able to say, oh, wow, you're a specialist in my area. I want to work with somebody who specializes in helping solve this issue. Uh, the metaphor I always use is if you go to the doctor and you say, hey, I need surgery uh, uh, for whatever reason, you'd want to work with a specialist for your condition, not a general practitioner or somebody who doesn't understand the problem you're experiencing at that in-depth technical mastery level. And so by specializing, you're able to attract more clients by clearly saying, these are the people I work best with. And what I found is that creates more referrals. When you have conversations with other people, you're able to easily say, this is who I work best with and this is the type of problem I solve. Do you know anybody who needs help with this? And they're able to easily think of, oh yeah, I can think of three people who need help with exactly that problem. Where if you're undifferentiated, if you're unspecialized, if you don't really have positioning, if you're just providing services for money, it's very easy for people to say, well, yeah, you do that thing, but I don't really know anybody who needs that thing. I think back to the start of my own career when I was selling uh, WordPress websites, basically uh, doing WordPress setup and customization for clients, and it was very undifferentiated. And so it was easy for prospects to say, well, yes, you're offering the service and charging X for it. This other person is offering pretty much the same service and charging half of X. Why should we chart? Why should we go with you when you're charging twice what they're charging? And unless you're specialized, unless you've accurately positioned yourself in the mind of your buyer, it's very, very hard for you to show them the value in working with you. And specialization dramatically helps with that. What I'm realizing hearing you talk about this now is that the level of differentiation is really totally linked to your appearance in the mind of your customers and the people you're working with. And so at first, when you said you're working on WordPress sites, my first reaction was, well, that's kind of specific already. And then the, my, the second moment I thought, oh, wait, everyone's using WordPress now. So that's not specific yep. enough anymore. So then you've got to go down another layer and another layer. So I guess there's no, there's really no general rule for how specific it just has to be enough. So what? I wonder if there's some signpost when you feel like this is specific enough. It's a good question. And it's one I've talked with Philip Morgan about. It's one I've talked with a number of my coaching students about. And really it's, can you narrow down the market such that you are one of the top service providers in that market, even at the current skill level you have right now, just by shrinking the pool of people you're marketing to and targeting such that there's enough work there to sustain yourself. So if we take my WordPress example, over the course of a few years, I eventually switched to specializing in Shopify and search engine optimization, which is more positioned and more specialized than just, I will do WordPress for you for money. Mm -hmm. But then I even went a level deeper. I noticed that a majority of my clients were in the fashion industry and all on Shopify. So for my e-commerce consulting, I focused specifically on stores running Shopify who needed help getting more traffic, who were selling women's fashion products. And 
as I refined my positioning to be more specific, people started coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, we're selling women's fashion products. We're doing six, seven figures a year. We need help getting more traffic and getting to that next level. Can you work with us? And just by having that metaphorical shingle out there that says, hey, I work specifically with this type of client to get the best results, people would start approaching me and I'd start getting more referrals. So how narrow and how niche and how specialized to go, it very much depends. The sort of qualitative gut rule I share with people is, Try to specialize until it feels a little uncomfortable. Go to right. the point where you're like, this feels this feels a little crazy. I'm I'm super, super narrow. What's going to happen? Well, if you don't find any clients, you can always go one step larger or one step beyond that and adjust your positioning. I've changed my positioning probably seven times in the last five years, just as I've identified different opportunities and spun up new businesses, tested it, seen if it worked or didn't work, and then shut it down if it didn't work. But really, specialization and positioning or marketing tools and marketing channels in a sense, just like Facebook ads or Google ads or search engine optimization. You could test them, see if it works, say, oh, this experiment didn't work, but that doesn't mean specialization and positioning don't work for me. It just means in this fashion or in this attempt, it did not reach the customers I was trying to reach. Sure. And so I'm thinking about in the world of the audio industry, if I were to be super general, I might say, I'm a sound engineer, give me money for doing sound engineering. But if I were to take it one step deeper, it would be, okay, I'm gonna work on live events. That's what I'll do. And I'll leave the studio work behind and I'll just focus on live events. But then that's, you, you could go even deeper and deeper until you're saying something like, okay, I just work on weddings. And then yeah. but maybe that's not even specific enough because uh, there are a lot of companies that work on weddings. So maybe I work on destination weddings to Hawaii uh, or something like that. And then you could even go even deeper and that, you know, they always have music involved or something like that. And the level of differentiation to the level of specificity, of, as we just discussed, is reached when you um, basically have enough clients in that area to support your business. And, and one of the tips that you mentioned where is if it feels a little uncomfortable, you're getting close. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like the, the journey you go there from sound engineer to, well, I help people who are having destination weddings in Hawaii with da-da-da expensive problem related to sound engineering for this wedding. I mean, I think that's a perfect example. It's a way to go super narrow, super specialized. And I think when we reach that level of specialization, ideas start coming to us and we're able to say, okay, wow, if we're focusing on destination weddings, well, who's putting together these destination weddings? I should reach out to them and say, do you have a sound engineer that you bring on as part of the team or you refer work to? Uh, exploring the industry, the more narrow we get in our definition of who we're targeting, the easier I think it is to understand who we want to build relationships with, who we want to outreach to, who we want to seek referrals from, because we have that clarity where if we say, well, I do sound engineering, it gets a bit amorphous. It's really squishy. Like there's a number of different types of people we could reach out to. But when we have that narrow specialization, it starts becoming easy. Okay, somebody who's booking destination weddings in Hawaii, we could probably compile a list of 20 or 30 people who are related to that industry in the next 30 minutes. And that gives us a list of people to start building relationships with to acquire new clients or say, well, if you have somebody who's in need of this service, I am available. Right. And as you're saying that, I'm realizing that the same thing is happening in the minds of people that you're talking to about this. So if I say to you, hey, I'm a sound engineer, you might forget about that and you might not know how to help me if you wanted to help me. But if I say, 
Um, hey, I help people who are working on destination weddings to Hawaii that involve live music. That'll probably not only stick in your mind a little bit better, but that'll immediately start probably firing synapses in your brain and like making connections. And you're thinking, oh, I know someone in Hawaii. Oh, I know someone who's getting married. Those kinds of things that when you're not specific enough, you know, don't really trigger anything in anyone's mind. Completely, completely agreed. I think of that as a referable moment when you share your positioning statement or just a short one to two sentence cocktail party-esque description of what you do and somebody instantly goes, oh, I know somebody who needs your help or I know somebody I need to connect you with. When you start getting that type of reaction to how you describe yourself, how you describe your business, how you describe what you do, I think then you're starting to have the right positioning because people are saying, oh, wow, I understand what it is that you do. I understand the problem you solve. I understand who you work with. I know people who would benefit from that. Cool. So let's let's get our feet a little bit dirtier in this. Feet? No, hands. Sorry. Let's get our hands dirty in this. Either one. Uh, either one, depending on what you're doing, I guess. So let's talk about your book, Outreach Blueprint. In Outreach Blueprint, you describe outreach as emailing humans to start conversations with them about their business, their pains, and their problems. So is it just personal one-on-one? -on -one? Is it just email? What else is considered outreach? I'm taking, I've started to take a broader view of outreach and see outreach as any mode of communication that helps us stimulate a conversation and build a relationship with a prospect or even a past client or a referral source in our target market. But it really comes down to a means to stimulate the conversation, build that relationship, and then understand if they're a prospect for us, what problems are they experiencing? What outcomes mm -hmm. are they looking for? But yeah, I think it's one of the most impactful marketing tools. And really, when we look at outreach, we could look at three primary modalities of it. We have email-based outreach, typically sending emails to people, starting the relationship, stimulating the conversation. We have phone-based outreach. This could be cold calling or warm calling if it's people you already know. And we also have direct mail-based outreach, uh, which sometimes is referred to as lumpy mail, sending letters, sending postcards to people. But they're all means to an end. And the end is stimulate that conversation, spark a conversation with somebody who is a prospect in your target market, and use that conversation to understand, okay, is this somebody I could help? Is this somebody who would benefit from me connecting them with another service provider, educating them on my services or something else? I really appreciate that definition, Kai, because I had uh, a student who said, I don't want to be an office ninja, or they said something to the effect of, I don't really care about being an office ninja. When I was trying to sort of convince them to use some of the techniques I was trying to teach them about like email, let's set up the spreadsheet and then let's make sure that you, you know, have this follow up. And then I realized, you know what, it's still outreach. Like if you want to like go out to the bar and meet people or go to shows or go whatever you do and you're more comfortable with that, like that's great. And you should do what you're good at and what you're comfortable with. And that's still outreach. You're absolutely right. That's the fourth category I left off a uh, uh, direct personal contact. And I think meetup groups, networking events, conferences, it is all outreach. It's stimulating conversations. It's identifying people and seeing, hey, is there anything I could do to help? So in your book, you say that the most impactful marketing tool is repeated direct personal contact a little bit as we were already just talking about it. So I want you to pitch me on outreach. I, I want to say to the people who are listening to this right now, why should I care about this? 
Um, maybe you could talk about a couple of the main benefits of improving your outreach if it isn't already clear. Absolutely. So uh, again, we, we want to view outreach as a means to it, a means to the end of stimulating conversations with people in our target market. And so the benefits of an outreach system really break down to, first and foremost, do you understand who you're trying to reach? You understand the messaging you're using to communicate with them, the outcomes they're searching for, the benefits they're looking for, the problems they're currently experiencing. And uh, uh, from that quote you had, uh, the most impactful marketing tool is repeated direct personal contact. I think the repeated word is really the most important there because it's so easy to start an outreach campaign and say, hey, you know what? I built up a list of 20 people to contact. I emailed them and nobody responded back. Outreach sucks. Well, the truth is, when we send one email, the person might be on vacation, they might be busy. I know I just got back from a trip and I had 1,500 emails to respond to my inbox. And I'm finally, a month later, down to under 100. And so the people who just emailed once and then never followed up, that signals to me, oh, this isn't really a priority on their side. But when we focus on that repeated direct personal contact, saying, okay, I need to plan ahead and say, what's the second, the third, and the fourth means by which I contact this person? Maybe it's phone, maybe it's email, maybe it's something else. But by focusing on having this follow-up system in place for your outreach, you ensure that you're making the necessary number of contacts to alert the person that you're available, alert them that you're here to help, uh, start asking questions and start stimulating that conversation. But it really comes down to that repeated direct personal contact. I think we could all agree that direct personal contact is incredibly valuable when it comes to marketing. If you have the chance to sit down with somebody who's in your target market and just explore what they're going through or learn about their business, it's an impactful marketing tool in terms of market research and in terms of positioning and pitching your services. But if we're struggling to make contact with prospects or struggling to make contact with potential referral sources or partners or people we need to build a relationship with, it's important to focus on that repeated word. We need to make sure that we're following up consistently, that we aren't just sending one email and then stopping. Instead, we're saying, hey, I need to be in this for multiple emails. If somebody isn't responding, it's not because they hate me. It's not because they don't like me. It's not because they don't want to work with me. It's probably because they're busy. So let me find a way to follow up that provides value that simply isn't saying, hey, did you get that last email I sent you? But instead is saying, hey, here's a podcast I was just interviewed on. By the way, uh, do you need help with XYZ? Uh, here's an article that I wrote or an article I found or a resource or a conference talk that was really interesting. Some means of adding more value to the conversation, but making sure that you're staying top of mind and top of inbox. Uh, I remember one prospect I was contacting through an outreach campaign and I actually followed up with them nearly 30 times to build a relationship oh and set up, yeah, set up a, a opportunity to talk with them. And they ended up being a client that I've worked with for three years now, but it was only <laughs> through that persistent, diligent outreach and saying, I'm going to continue to provide value. I'm going to continue to follow up that I was able to convert them from a prospect and a lead into a long-term client. And it really comes down to that consistency, that repeated direct personal contact. Even if I wasn't hearing back, I was willing to say, hey, it's valuable for me to continue following up until I get either a yes, I'd love to work with you, or a hey, no, uh, this isn't going to be a fit. Because until we either get a yes or no, we really don't have any data to move forward on. And I think it's incorrect to make the assumption that if you don't get a reply to the email, it's a no. Instead, it's a no response. And so we want to follow up until we get that response. And the way I see that playing out with a lot of people that I talk to is that they say things aren't going very well. And I say, what have you done? And I say, 
they say, well, I've sent my resume out to all the local companies and haven't heard anything back. And then I say, uh, did you follow up with them? And they say, no, but I usually do that once a year or something. And I say, okay, well, that's good that you do that once a year, but you need to follow up with them. Like, and then I start asking more questions of like, what are some other ways that you could be continuing that conversation either by trying to build relationships with people at that company or by, you know, just following up with the person that you sent your resume to that aren't just that one email. I think a lot of people, especially in the audio industry and any other industry that's really connected through personal referral is that they feel like it's all luck, right? And I used to try to fight people about that, but now I just say, okay, if you think it's all built on luck, then why not try to um, increase your chances of getting lucky by mm -hmm. following up, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> so if you, that's fine if you think it's all built on luck, let's try to make you more lucky, I guess is, is what exactly. follow up is all about. I'm sorry, what were you gonna say after that? Oh no, I completely agree with that point. I mean, like the way I often think about it mentally is, well, if it's a coin flip, a 50-50 chance of somebody responding to this email, what are things I could do that, you know, give me a weighted coin that make it a 60% or a 70% chance of them responding to this email or wanting to engage with me in some way? And I think you're absolutely right. If we think about it as being luck-based, what could we do to maximize sort of our luck surface area or our opportunities? Well, contact more people, follow up more often. And I'd say the most important one is understand the problem that your person, the person you're emailing is actually experiencing. For the uh, example of, well, I sent off my resume, but I haven't heard back from anyone yet. Are the people you're contacting necessarily looking for resumes or do they have a different type of problem? Would it be more beneficial to email and say, hey, I noticed you had you know, a live sound event recently. I specialize in helping with those. Do you need any help with that? Is there anything I can do to help with your next event? And seeking out the problem, seeking out to understand where they need help rather than just sending over a resume, which may not do an effective job of communicating the problems you're able to solve specifically for this prospect or this client that you're contacting. Right. I guess in an ideal world, you would be telepathic and you could just know that the person who books the labor for the events at this company currently needs someone who specializes in like equipment X. And then you would, you know, ahead of time specialize in that. And then you would be able to reach out to them directly and say, I'm the person that you need at this moment. Mm -hmm. But since we're not telepathic and we can't like a lot, there's research you can do obviously to try and to put yourself in that position at the right time. But um, otherwise, yeah, try to give yourself a weighted coin. I like the way you said that. Exactly, yeah, and I think one of the best ways to give yourself a weighted coin is through market research, which I view as being very closely tied to outreach. If we're sound engineers and we're saying, well, we want to understand what equipment or what technology or what needs these prospects, these potential clients have, We'll outreach to them, setting up market research interviews, saying, hey, you know what, I'm located in your town. I'd love to take you out for coffee or lunch for 30 or $40, the price of a lunch for two. You could have an hour conversation with somebody who is in charge of hiring people exactly like you for future events. And so you could say, well, what sort of events are coming up over the next six months? What technologies or what equipment are you looking for people to specialize in? Uh, where do you hire consultants? Where do you need help coming up? And suddenly you are that telepathic mind reader because you've created an environment, stimulated a conversation where you're able to get an information dump from them about exactly what they need moving forward. And so now when you reach out to restart that conversation or continue that conversation, it's so easy to say, oh, you mentioned you needed help with XYZ and somebody who is proficient with this equipment. That's wonderful. I have those qualifications. I'd love to help with this. 
what would be the best next step? Or let's set up a call to talk through how we could work together for this event that's happening in a few months. But by starting outreach with a focus on market research, just stimulating conversations with the type of people you want to work with, and then not even pitching them, but saying, can I take you out to lunch? Can I buy you coffee near your office and just learn a little more about the type of events you run or the type of projects you're having? It's a wonderful way to become that mind reader and make that coin a little more on your side than their side. So Kai, you and I have talked about uh, going after what you want, setting those goals, and then doing outreach related to that. Um, but it's been all kind of like a little bit abstract, you know, like uh, here are important things and maybe things you're doing, not doing. So let's talk about taking action. Let's talk about getting started with outreach. And I'm going to read another quote from your book. You say, outreach to maintain your relationships doesn't have to be hard. You need a list of people, a schedule, and to know what to say. So if I'm starting from scratch today and I wanna improve my outreach because I know it's one of the most important tools for my business growth, what are one or two steps I can take now? Well, I think uh, the list of three that you read off are the key areas to focus on. So let's focus in on each of those. Uh, we have your list, we have the schedule, and we have what to say. So first off with the list, one mistake I often see people make when they start an outreach campaign is saying, I need all the people, all the email addresses, all the prospects. And so they build a list of 100 or 200 people and then get overwhelmed and stop. Instead, what I recommend is you're building that initial list to say, well, who are 10 people that I could contact? These could be past clients. These could be colleagues. These could be people in the industry. These could be people you want to have market research conversations with. But just start with 10 as that lead list of that list of people that you want to contact because it allows you to experiment in a more confined area. It doesn't have to feel like an overwhelming project. Instead, it's, okay, build a list of 10 people. Great, I've done that. And then I can move on to the next step. And then once you complete the outreach campaign, you could circle back to that list building step and say, okay, it went well. Let me build a list of 30 people to contact now. But for, for an outreach campaign, I think the first step is well, I guess step zero is identifying exactly who you want to contact, the positioning and specialization conversation we had earlier, and then building a list of people that match that description. And you might find that through Googling, through looking at your local chamber of commerce, through looking on LinkedIn, through contacting friends and colleagues and saying, hey, I'm trying to get in touch with people like X. Do you know anybody who's matches that description or needs help with XYZ? If so, please introduce me and just build that initial list of 10 people to contact. Is there anything I could better explain on that? No, I think that's great. So start with a small list. So don't go through, don't open up all of my contacts. Start with a small mm -hmm. list, I think is key there. I like that. So for the second element, the schedule, I recommend a schedule because it's closely tied with the idea of follow-up. If we say, well, we're going to contact everybody on our list, the 10 people on our list, let's say six times over the next two months. Okay, we have a schedule now. We could say we're going to contact them on you know, this date, this date, and this date. And that naturally leads into what we want to say. So if we have a schedule and we say we're going to contact people six times, it naturally leads us to that point of saying, well, what do we say in the follow-up emails? And so we're building out the follow-up sequence ahead of time. We're saying, well, I'm going to assume that people are not going to respond to my first email. So what's the second email I want to send them if I don't get a reply? What's the email I send them a week later? 
And then, well, let's assume they don't respond to that second email. What's the third email I send them? So by figuring out what we want to say based on market research, based on our understanding of the industry, based on our understanding of the problems they're experiencing, we're able to craft our messages focused on the problem we think they're experiencing or the problem we know they're experiencing, and making ourselves available to help with it, either through saying, hey, I'd love to, if you are experiencing this problem, I'd love to ask you a few questions just so I could better understand it. Or if you are experiencing this problem or looking for help in this area, I'd love to set up a call just to understand if I'm the right person to help with that. But really, we start with building that small list. We start with saying we're going to have a consistent schedule. Every Monday, I'm going to follow up with the people on my list. And then we move into the messaging. Okay, so if I'm going to follow up every Monday six times, what are those six emails? By writing them out ahead of time, uh, I generally get to the 70% stage in a draft of it and then say, oh, I'm going to improve on it once I send it. We're removing one of the most common blocking elements. Hey, I emailed somebody and they didn't get back to me. I need to send them a follow-up email. Ah, but I got this thing I need to do. And then the follow-up gets pushed down the line and never actually happens. By writing those follow-up emails ahead of time in advance, it becomes so much easier to say, okay, I didn't hear back from that person. Let me send them email number two. A week passes. Oh, I still didn't hear back. Let me send them email number three. And we go through these six emails. And at the end of the six emails, we could say, well, I've heard back from three people and I'm in conversation with them. I never heard back from these seven. Let me put them aside. Maybe I'll follow up with them again in another three or six months. But now let me circle back to the start of this and say, okay, I have the schedule already defined. I have the emails I've been sending, the messaging. Let me build another lead list, another list of people to contact, maybe 20 people this time, and move through that process again, contacting them on the schedule we defined, sending the messages, following up if we don't hear back. And if we do hear back, moving them into a conversation. Another thing I like about that last step is that I think you're setting yourself up for emotional resilience. Because earlier we talked about, oh no, what if they don't write back to me? Well, you have a plan for that now. And you know what you're going to do, you know when you're going to do it. So in the moment, you're not uh, using a lot of, you know, mental energy in just decision making in the moment, like, uh, when do I write them back? And do I need to? And, and what should I say? Or what do I do there? So it's like, you have a moment, you have some time of clarity when you can plan that stuff out. And then, and then not only are you uh, less affected emotionally, no matter what the outcome is, um, but you can also respond faster. Exactly, and I think you bring up an excellent point with the emotional aspect. A number of people, myself included, when no, when people don't respond to your outreach emails, they can feel sad or feel like, oh gosh, what am I doing wrong here? Or I'm not the good enough. Is, <laughs> or I'm not good enough, yeah. There's, there's so much emotion that could come out in there. A, I think that understanding that people sometimes don't respond, that removes some of the emotional wear or the emotional baggage that could come along with this because it positions yourself to say, okay, people don't respond to emails. I don't respond to emails. Let me follow up and provide more value so that they say, oh, this is worth engaging with. This is worth responding to. I started off saying, A, I can't remember what B is now. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you remember in a second when we talk about something else. Oh, of course. First step, short list. Second step, make a schedule of when you're gonna work on it and then when you're going to send your outreach and have a plan of what to say. So not only when, but also what. 
Exactly. And okay. really, it's it's a skill that we build like anything else. Just like if we're practicing a musical instrument or practicing our skill or our discipline as a uh, professional, outreach is something we get better with over time. And so that first campaign may get no responses, and that's okay. We're building the metaphorical muscles of outreach. We're getting better at practicing the skill. And so when we do the second, the third, the fourth campaign, we say, hey, I've done this a couple times already. I know what to expect. I've laid the tracks. I have the resources. And so it's going to be easier and easier each time I go through an outreach cycle and contact people. And you know what? Something else I'm just realizing right now, Kai, is that sometimes no response or a negative response can be just as clarifying as a positive response. And it might not make us money or a client in the moment. But if we go back to our example of, you know, the sound engineer who's helping destination weddings in Hawaii, if they first decide, you know what, the most important people for me to include in my outreach are meeting planners in Minneapolis, and then they start working on that, and then they discover that they're getting negative responses or no responses, then that might just be the research they need to go through to find out that like, oh, those aren't actually the best people to talk to. And the reason that I really wanted to say this right now is that that's one of the biggest questions I get when I start proposing that people start engaging in more outreaches. They say, well, who should I talk to? And immediately I want to answer their question, but then I realize in a lot of cases, I don't really know because I don't know mm -hmm. the market layout of your city and, and what the needs are there. And in a lot of cases, I haven't worked in the industry that you're working in. I haven't worked in, in destination weddings, so I probably wouldn't know how to answer that. And I could probably guess, but in reality, you're probably going to have to go through the work where you... Um, you know, kind of feeling your way along the path with one foot in front of you looking for anything you're going to trip on um, before you find out. Entirely. Absolutely. And I think like the, the you're absolutely right in that it's unique to every industry. Who should I contact? People in your industry who you think have a strong chance of being a good prospect or being a referral source or could help educate you on the industry or on the problem you're solving. But beyond that, it gets very specific to whatever industry you're involved in. And it really is, like you said, a thought exercise to determine who you need to contact. And maybe you start out contacting one group of people, you get negative responses, no responses, and you say, okay, this doesn't mean outreach is the wrong tool. This doesn't mean my positioning is wrong. It just means I may be contacting the wrong people, or it may mean that the messaging I'm using when I contact the people is off. If I email them and say, hey, uh, you know, I specialize in destination weddings to Hawaii. Well, they are down for destination weddings to Hawaii they might not be booking destination weddings to Hawaii. You mm -hmm. might have a mismatch between who you're emailing and who you want to be emailing. So there's very much a uh, sort of an iterative process on who you want to contact. There's one thing you said, though, that I'd love to offer another opinion on. Sure. I think getting a yes to outreach is wonderful. If somebody responds back and is like, let's have a conversation, that's wonderful. If they respond back with a no, I like that equally as much as I do a yes, because it at least lets me cross them off the list or understand their objection or understand why it's not a good fit. No's are super, super valuable. When we get no response, though, that's harder because we can't understand what the objection was or what the reason was for the lack of response. It could be we emailed 10 people and this is an industry where they take two months off in the end of the year and so nobody's in their offices. Or it could be messaging reasons. So I always try to have a follow-up campaign that goes to the point of saying like, hey, if this isn't a good fit, just hit reply and say no and I won't follow up with you again. Just so I could get either a yes, this is great, or a no, this isn't a good fit. Mm -hmm. I dislike ending up with the 
said no response because it really doesn't teach me anything about the validity or the success of the campaign. It just might be, I picked the wrong 10, 20, or 30 people to contact this time and nobody responded. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was about to say that I really liked a couple of your examples or templates in your book where you say uh, exactly that. If the answer to this is no, just hit reply and let me and, and say no. A lot of times people are thinking they want to reply no, but they don't want to hurt your feelings. And so this maybe they just don't reply or they don't know how to say it. And so if you just open the door to that and say, hey, either way is fine. There was a wonderful book I read about a year ago on negotiation. I think the name is Start With No. And that book actually opened my eyes to this concept, inviting the no in a conversation or a proposal or a pitch or in an outreach email, just by saying like, hey, if this isn't a good fit, hit reply and say it's not a good fit and I won't bother you again. And I've noticed that I do get more no responses. And I actually like that because as I said earlier, the no at least lets me start, get, gets me a response and then lets me start to unpack why it's a no. What's the objection? Oh, we already have somebody who does this. Great. Who is it? I'd love to understand who the competitors are. Oh, we have a staff member that does this internally. Oh, that's fascinating. Tell me more. How did you hire that person? When did you hire that person? Or, hey, you know what? This just isn't a fit. We aren't uh, in business anymore. We aren't providing the service that would complement what you're providing. Okay, great. This lets me refine my outreach. But going to the point of inviting the no, asking for the no, lets us get to that objection. And once we understand that objection, we could refine our messaging and our marketing to better address it. Hi, do you have a business coach or a mastermind group? I'm wondering if there's some ways, some systems you have in place to kind of promote your own evolution as an entrepreneur. Absolutely. I've been involved in uh, mastermind groups since 2013. Yes, 2013. Uh, one long running group that I've been in for three and a half years one group that I've been in for about a year, and then a few other groups along the way that started and then finished a few months later. But I found mastermind groups to be incredibly valuable as a business owner because I'm able to surround myself with people who are at a similar level to myself or one level above me, ask questions, get feedback, get answers, get other people's input. I might be staring down a challenge that I don't know how to solve, and I could bring it to my mastermind group and say, hey, I'm having issues with X, Y, and Z, or hey, I'm you know emotionally not feeling that great about my business, or hey, I'm struggling with this client. And I'm able to have people who I trust offer their input on what to do or say, oh, I encountered that exact same thing. This is how I resolved it or this is how I overcame that challenge. So mastermind groups have been incredibly valuable for my evolution as an entrepreneur. I credit a large majority of my success over the last four years to mastermind groups I've joined. I've worked one-on-one -on -one with business coaches on and off, and I found that working with a business coach is an incredibly valuable experience to help you set goals, understand what you want to achieve, and move towards that as a destination. I'd say the three most valuable sort of assets you can have there, working with a business coach to have a specific actionable plan you want to follow to grow your business, working with a mastermind to be surrounded by a community of your peers who you're able to come to you with challenges or problems or questions and get their input and their perspective, and working with a therapist, somebody who's able to help you with the emotional issues, the emotional struggles that come up when you own your own business, burnout, struggles with clients, uh, all the emotional things that we deal with as entrepreneurs or business owners or employees, those three really have helped me evolve as an entrepreneur. I appreciate you saying all of that because 
think there's a potential from the outside, especially for people who work by themselves, a lot of times which are entrepreneurs, which are us, and especially even sound engineers who work on small and medium-sized events where they're by ourselves, we're the only ones who are working on the audio potentially on that event and we don't see anyone else um, because there's only one of us there at a time. Um, there's a potential to kind of see that person as though they built that up all by themselves. And so you might look at Kai Davis from the outside and say like, oh, I guess he's maybe smarter than me or better than me. And, and reality, you have all of these resources you've been drawing upon to, to support you along the way, emotionally, um, psychologically, in your business and in all these ways. And so I, I appreciate you sharing that. Absolutely. I, I, just going one level deeper on that, I think nobody really accomplishes it alone. There's secrets, there's groups there. I guess secrets isn't the right word. There's groups, there's support networks, there's systems that people draw on. And it's very easy to see sort of the public face of an entrepreneur or a business owner and say, oh, they have it all figured out. They must never experience the challenges I'm experiencing. <laughs> the truth is, Everybody is, you know, a little bit broken. Everybody's struggling with their own issues, myself included. And I, I don't know, one of the things that I try to do whenever I'm on a podcast or wherever I have a conversation that goes in this direction is say, we're all, you know, slightly broken in some ways and that's okay. And what's important is saying, well, I struggle with this. Let me surround myself with people and support networks and systems that help me be a better person or be a better business owner or overcome those challenges and obstacles because that's the only way we really grow as business owners and humans. So guys, speaking of surrounding yourself with people, where is the best place for people to follow your work? I recommend that people sign up for my daily email newsletter. I send out a, a letter every day, Monday through Friday, about how to get more clients for your freelance business or how to grow a better uh, business as a freelancer or a consultant. And you could sign up for that at kaidavis.com, K-A-I-D-A-V-I-S.com. If you sign up today, I guarantee you'll get tomorrow's issue in your inbox. Kai, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live today. Hey, thank you so much for having me, and thank you to the audience for uh, listening to the episode. Sound Design. Thank you to the Riot Professor for music in today's episode. If you want to find more of their music, you can go to theriotprofessor.com. That's T-H-E-R-I-O-T-P-R-O-F-E-S-S-O-R.com. E-S-S-O-R.com.